0: So we have been in a series entitled Everyday Spirit. What we've been doing is preaching and teaching about the Holy Spirit and its context of living it out every day. You can easily go to churches all across the country, especially charismatic ones, and find them preaching about the Holy Spirit, seeing demonstrations of the Holy Spirit manifesting and all these things which are fantastic. But you'll also find a difficulty of the everyday living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the goal, is to to preach and understand the Holy Spirit, but also to understand how to walk in it every day of our lives. What does that look like, to walk in a prophetic life? What does it look like to walk in a Spirit-filled life? What does it look like to walk a powerful life? And these are some of the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks. This is the fifth week of this series. If you missed the first four any of them, go to our our website, rfcpeoria.com. And click the listen link, and you can listen to all of them. Last week, my very good friend, Pastor Nate Terry, who's an elder here, um, preached. And he, he preached a house down last week on how the Holy Spirit shows up. And wow, was it powerful. So today, we're going to jump into this idea of being led by the Spirit. And we are going to use Jesus as the best example of being led by the Spirit. By the Spirit. So as we, as we do this, we're going to jump in to the book of Matthew. We're going to look at this account. This is a story that is accounted for in three Gospels, and we're going to look at all three accounts of this story just to see some symmetry, see some differences, see what God opens up. So they all chronologically start at the same time. There's this moment just after Jesus was baptized by John, The Bible says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And then a voice from heaven declared, This is my son whom I love and brings me great joy. So you have the introduction even in Jesus' ministry of the Trinity of God, just even in the introduction of Jesus into his ministry, because you have Jesus, the Son of God, being baptized You have the Holy Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove. And then you have the voice of God who says, This is introduces him to the world and says, This is my son. Right? So you've got God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all appearing at once at the launching of Jesus' ministry. That's actually pretty important to understand and to know about him being sent out. And so, so God acknowledges this moment. And then in Matthew chapter four. Verse number one, it'll be up on the screen for you. If you want to get to your Bible, you can, but it'll be up on the screen. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. The Bible says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. So Matthew's account of this moment, he's using this Greek word called anago, anago which is mean, where's where he used the word led. This word literally means to be led or brought up into, right? To be led or to brought up into. It's actually often used in, in context with the idea of sailing. So when setting sail from port, it was the same word that they would use. This Greek word, anago. And where was he led? He was led into what Matthew says is to the wilderness, It's a desolate place, a barren wasteland, and a place of emptiness and even darkness. So he's led into this wilderness. And then why was he led there? To be tempted. Very simply, in the original language, it literally means to be tested, or more importantly, to be proven of. Which is really interesting. So God spoke to to the earth and said, this is my son, whom I love and am pleased, and then led him into the wilderness to be proven by the devil. So he would approach, the devil would then approach him, and if you know the story, he would offer him riches, and he would offer him ruling, and he would offer him all that he had to offer from a worldly standpoint. And at each turn, Jesus would deny him and fight that off. And then it goes on. To say, And so this, this idea, I love the idea of making proof of because I really feel like it means I'm, go, I'm about to put you into a situation. And this is going to make some sense for your life here in a few minutes, I promise you. But to put you into a situation that simply means I'm going to reveal to everyone just who he is. And so when the father did that and, tempt, and, and sent him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, it was let's make proof. Of who my son is. And then we have Luke's account in Luke chapter 4, right? Again, this, this, this is accounted for in three, in three Gospels. And, and Luke has a very similar account as Matthew when he says, Then Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Again, very similar account of Matthew. And as a matter of fact, matter of fact, the word led in this context is a slightly different word. It's the Greek word ago, A G O. And it, it, it's slightly different because where the other where the previous word that Matthew used, it was a I'm bringing you into a place. This word, as Luke saw it and, and witnessed it, meant to be carried into a place. So here we have, I'm bringing you to this place, and then here we have Luke's account saying, I'm carrying you, and this matters, and I, I'll explain to you why this matters in just a few minutes, because we're going to do a, few, a little bit of teaching here before we get into the meat of what God has for us. And again, he led him into the same wilderness as Matthew had talked about, and both of these accounts of the same moment are actually very similar. Only real difference was which version of the Greek word was used. But then we have a third account. We have Mark's account. And if you ever study Scripture, study God's word, or, and I want to I encourage you and even challenge you, there's so much depth to God's word and study, Just not just for the word and what it says, but even the author and what he's saying and how he's saying it and who he's saying it to. And so if you read... Matthew's account of the gospel, and Luke's account of the gospel, and then you read Mark's account of the gospel. You're going to figure out something about Mark. Mark's a little off his rocker. If you, re- if you really study him, you're going to realize, man, this dude is out there. He's crazy. He says things that, wait a minute, that don't seem to make any kind of sense. And so he has almost a completely different account of the same situation, yet it was still very similar. And it's found in Mark chapter 1. So if you look at Mark chapter 1, it starts in verse number 12. It seemingly is going to sound very similar. But again, the study of it is what is critical. And he says in, verse, in Mark chapter 1, verse number 12, the Bible says, "...the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness." Where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days, he was out among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. Sounds a little different. Same basic account, but sounds a little different. In Mark's account, Jesus was compelled instead of led. In Mark's account, he, he, he told him about the same wilderness, but yet took it a step further and said he's among wild animals. But the angels took care of him. And so here's what I want you to understand. We're going to get to a few things that are really critical in this. But all three accounts speak of the same moment. All three accounts speak of the same wilderness. And all three accounts speak of the same temptation. Jesus, however, according to Mark, was thrust into this wilderness. So according to Matthew and Luke, it was kind of like a leading, a being carried away. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm very visual. And I, the image I get when I think of this story, I get this image of Jesus literally being like this. Lifted and gently set down into the wilderness. And he's like, okay, here I am. And then the devil, come on. You know, it's like this, it's this sweet presence of God type moment, Right? And that's what it does. It illustrates that the presence of, the, of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit was in and on Jesus. Because the Bible says that the Spirit of God descended upon him, and the Bible says that he was full of the Spirit. So both took place in even Jesus' life, which is why we preach it to being relevant for you today. Because it's not just necessary to have the Spirit of God in you, but it's also necessary to have the Spirit of God upon you. I mean, Jesus even said it when he started to preach. He said, and when he started to preach, he said, he, he the Spirit of God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. And that's been that was echoed all through different locations in Scripture. So it's not just the Spirit of God in you, it's also the Spirit of God upon you. Which is why I personally love the account of Mark. I am much more. For the lack of a better phrase, I am much more violent about my faith than I am docile about it. I am much more like, oh, let's go take on the world versus eh, we'll just kind of float through life and you know, we'll we'll greet and love everyone who comes. I'm not the hippie version of Christianity. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm this, I am this forceful. Type person, And that's who I am in my, in, in my DNA and how I'm wired. So there's four things in the Mark's account that I want us to understand because they have so much tremendous power for our lives. And then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how to make that practical and everyday part of your life. So the first thing I want you to understand, this is in your notes. You got a note sheet on there. It's also where we have our announcements to keep you reminded of what's going on. But also, it's a place to keep track of where we are in the message. So you can take some notes and draw and doodle if you're bored. Whatever you may use them for. But the first blank there, the first fill in the blank there for your notes is very simply, Jesus was thrust in. What does that mean? He was thrust in. Verse 12 of Mark says... The Spirit then compelled Jesus. So let's talk about this for a minute. Some translations say the word compelled. Some translations say the word driven or pressed. Or even there are a couple of translations that use the word thrust. So Mark uses a different, completely different word. It's the Greek word ekballo, E-K-B-A-L-L-O, Ekbalo. And when he speaks of it, it literally means with a sense of urgency, he is thrust into The wilderness. And not because he was unwilling to go, because a lot of us need that thrust when we're unwilling, right? It's almost like you guys, two people are standing in line. This is always going to happen. And so you're standing in line. We're kind of scared of what we're doing, or I really don't want to do it. And someone just steps next to you and just pushes you, right? And it's like, oh, there you go. Volunteer. You know, you ever have someone say, hey, I'm looking for a volunteer. And then someone just shoves them in the middle. Oh, well, thank you very much for volunteering. Right? It, it was not because Jesus was unwilling. It was because there was such a sense of urgency with, Jesus's, with Jesus that he, it was necessary for him to be into the wilderness in that moment. Because that was the beginning of God doing great things through him. The very first, the very beginning of God doing great things through him is him withstanding that testing in the wilderness. And so we oftentimes Don't want to experience the test of life because that, after all, that's difficult to experience. But I will be the one to suggest to you there's nothing great that God will ever do in you or through you that you've not experienced some sort of test, some sort of even pain, some sort of even suffering of some kind before you've ever accomplished anything great. For God's glory. Matter of fact, this word ekbalo has almost a violent usage. Every here's here's the reason why. A- every single time this word is used, eighty-one times in Scripture, in the New Testament, eighty-one times ekbalo is used, and almost every single one of those usages, with the exception of a few, were very simply talking about the casting out of demons. It was a forceful thrusting. Anytime Jesus would encounter a demon or a demon-possessed person, he would literally say, with authority, with power, and with force, come out of them. Be cast out. It's that same word that is used. So Jesus is, is leading as, as, as his leading was more forceful, according to Mark. And not because, again, he wasn't willing. It was, I believe, because the situation required such urgency. See, one unique place, though, that this is used, and it's relevant for our life. We're going to get to this in just a second. 81 times this scripture is used. Most of those times it's in referring to the casting out of demons. There's one other time. I'm going to get to that in a second. I just kind of want to pique your curiosity for that in a minute. There's one other time that's really, really interesting. The usage of it. And again, it's Jesus using it. So number one, Jesus was thrust in. And where was Jesus? Jesus was thrust into the wilderness. That's the second blank in your sheet. He was thrust into the wilderness. Verse 12, again, the, last, the next half of that verse, the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. So this idea of the wilderness that all three writers speak of is interesting because in, in its original translation, it's in original context, it's literally translated as a desert, an unpopulated wasteland, a desolate place, a place of solitude. Mark even said he was among the wild animals. Talk about that in a minute. However, it's also ironically, if you look in, through scripture, wherever there is a desert being spoken of, wherever there's this desolate place being spoke of, there's solitude place being spoke of, what you can often find, more times than not, is it's also the very place that God speaks to his people. Interesting thought there, that Jesus is being thrust into this wilderness, this deserted place, where many, many people have found themselves throughout scripture, that every one of them found themselves In his presence, where he was making provision for them that would seek him. Look at Moses in the wilderness, running for his life. And what did God do? Appeared to him in the wilderness, in a desolate place of loneliness as a burning bush. The children of Israel wandered in the desert. Wandered in circles virtually, hungry, thirsty, seemingly outside of the will of God for their lives, yet God would always provide food from heaven. Right? The desert might be a dry place and it might be a lonely place and it might be a difficult place and it might be a barren wasteland of a place, but it's not a place where there is not God. It is not a place where He's not speaking and He's not providing. And we see that even in this story with Jesus. He is encountering the devil and he is being tempted with everything that he could possibly be tempted with. He's throwing everything at him with the expect with the expectation of getting him to submit. And Jesus did two things. The very first thing when he would speak to the devil was he would say it is written the devil would tempt him with food when he's hungry and fasting. And if you've ever fasted, you understand the hunger associated with fasting. And the devil would tempt him with food. And, the, and then Jesus would that it is written that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In a desert, he's acknowledging that. While hungry, he's acknowledging that. You know, we often find ourselves in a place in our lives where we don't want to do, we don't want to be in this desert. Matter of fact, we spend so much of our time trying to leave this wilderness when all God really needs and all he really wants is for us to seek him while we're in that limited environment. But we spend so much of our time, how to get out, how to get out of trouble, you can easily Google, go ahead and Google five ways to stay out of trouble, 10 ways to not find yourself in difficulty, 10 ways to stay, to not be depressed. You can Google anything. We are constantly trying and trying and trying to be out of the wilderness when all God wants is to be able to speak to us in the wilderness. And I'll be the first to tell you some of the darkest moments of my life, some of the most difficult and challenging moments of my life have been moments when I felt alone, moments when I felt like I was in a desolate place, like everyone around me had abandoned me and walked away. And those have also been the most powerful moments of my life because they were the moments where I find myself. And honestly, it echoes Chad's song where I find myself and I'm on my knees and I'm like, only you, God, can do this. And honestly, that's all he wants. All he wants from your wilderness, all he wants from that moment in that place is for you just to acknowledge him. To say that only you, God, can do this. That we will take and spend so much effort, so much energy trying to get out of that place. You ever try, you ever, this, this should just be real and honest. Have you ever gotten to a place like that and you've done everything you can do to get out and all you've ever done is spin wheels, spin wheels, spin wheels, and get deeper into the hole? And if you've done that every single time, let me help you out. Try something different. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe if you if you're struggling to get into the presence of God and pray, pick a different day to pray. Pick a different time to pray. Well, you know, I pray in the evening time, right before I go to bed, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's a good place to start. Sure. God, I survived the day. I guess I'm thankful for that. Good night. And that seems to be the end of our time with him. And if that doesn't seem to be working for you, how about this? How about you get up just a little bit early in the morning, and then you can actually praise God and say, I've got breath in my lungs. Thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning. Then you can actually talk to God about your day before it actually takes place, rather than griping about it after it's taken place. These, it sounds simple and it sounds like, yeah, whatever, but I'm telling you, these types of things are what change your life. You may not exit the wilderness, but the wilderness doesn't have to live in you. The wilderness did not live in Jesus. He lived in the wilderness for that time, but it didn't live in him. As a matter of fact, with every temptation for that wilderness to come in, what do he say? It is written. It's the reason why your pastor keeps telling you, read the Bible, Makes sense. Understand this the Spirit of God will never lead you to a place that Jesus won't meet you and then also keep you and care for you. It'll never happen. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. He's not about, okay, here you go. I'm going to drop you off in the middle of nowhere. Adios. Enjoy. United States military does that to you. Not Jesus. That's not the way he operates. I remember the day when he said, go plant a church. I remember it very clearly because I said no. And after I got past the no, I said, okay, where do you want me to plant a church? And immediately Peoria came to my heart and I was like, okay, cool. Let's go plant a church in Peoria. I literally quit my job as a pastor, youth pastor. On staff at a church, my wife had no job. So let's move to Peoria and plant the church. People were like, you're stupid. It's like, yeah, that's beside the point. I'm still going to do it. So here I found myself in the middle of a city where, guess how many people I knew in Peoria? Seven. All seven of them worked at the Starbucks on the corner of University and Glen. There's a story behind that I don't have time for right now. That's all the people I knew in Peoria. God said, go and do it. So he brought me to what personally, not physically, but what personally in that moment was a wilderness place. I don't know anyone. Now I got no money. I got nothing. But God, you said to be here. So guess what I did every day? What you brought me here. I don't know why. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You said plant a church and I'm working on that. But I need you to make a way. And then I would start to meet people. And lo and behold, here we are. Six years later. Still going. Still going strong. Matter of fact, stronger than ever. Healthier than ever. Making a greater impact than we ever have in a community. And it's very simply not. It's, it's because I didn't run from the wilderness. I just didn't allow it to get in me. I didn't allow that, light, that, that, that fear to live in me and grip me. Because I knew Jesus led me here. The Spirit of God led me here. So there's no way he's going to lead me to a place that Jesus won't provide for me, meet me, and cover me. Number three from Mark's account of this leading and being led of the Spirit. And it's interesting. Mark is the only one who said this. But Jesus was among the wild animals. Really interesting thought process there. Verse 13, he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. Most of us can't handle 40 minutes. And he was out among the wild animals. And it seems like a random idea and a random thought. This is why I suggested that Mark is a little off his rocker because he would say things that seemingly were random. Jesus in the wilderness with the wild animals. After all none of the other accounts even mentioned it. But when I read Mark he's way too intentional to have just a random point in his narrative. And here's there's a connection here that I want to make and this is going to I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm going gonna, gonna to channel my inner teacher for a moment. The connection you can make to Jesus being in among the wild animals. The wild animals literally were uncontrollable beasts in the original language. Uncontrollable beasts. Why is that important? Because if you remember at creation, in Genesis, all the animals were subject to Adam. Every animal in all of creation was subject to Adam. That he would rule and that he would reign over every animal. Now think about it. If somebody had rule and reign over an animal, is there any reason that they should fear... These animals. None whatsoever. But then enters into the situation sin. Sin and enters in and everything God's creation is now compromised. Everything that was perfect is no longer perfect. They've engaged in conversation and thoughts that they never were intended to engage in. And now no one is subject to anyone. The animals no longer are subject to the reign and rule of man. And now we live in a world where dogs bite, zoos need cages, and even the best crocodile hunters die. Imagine Imagine that that was not the intention of creation. These animals were supposed to be subject to us. And but while our fear of a wild animal persists, and some of you have some experience with this, if you've ever hiked or camped in, in, a, in, a, in a significant mountain range like the Appalachian Mountains or the Rocky Mountains, you've come across some wild beasts, some bears maybe, some big gigantic elk. People look at us say, man, that's big and beautiful. Those things are nasty. Don't get in the way. It will gore you. I know our, our, one of our, our worship leader when we planted a church and a very good friend of mine and a young man who I happen to be, been a spiritual father for many years um, took a video. He was in the Rocky Mountains hiking. He did that quite a bit. And he was in one of these little side shelters. And he, he was in this shelter. It has no front to it. And he's sitting in there just out of the weather just resting on, for his hike and um, up walks an elk. Sticks his whole head inside this shelter, and he's like (laughs) curled in the corner. And you can see he's got his camera, his phone, because the things we'll do, right? There's a big giant elk sticking his head in there. The last thing I'm worried about is catching video. Just not me. So he's in there. He's got his phone. He's getting video, and he's got this this gigantic elk in there. And then uh, he would find out later that uh, there was an elk that was on the loose that had killed two hikers. And that was the one they were looking for. And uh, so there's these wild animals that we have to fear because sin entered the world. And so while our fear of these wild animals persists, and it should, don't go out there, I'm not scared of the bear. That's when the bear will rip your face off. But while that is true and while it persists and it should, Jesus, number one, is our champion And he is the pioneer of the one who tramples on the heads of the serpent and empowers us to stop in the same way. But see, here's the thing. We get so distracted by all the... And let me tell you, let me just bring this back to to earth. There are some folks in your life that are like wild animals. That should be avoided like the plague. Like I'm talking the kind of folks, when they come around you, you got to figure out how to dismiss yourself without dismissing them. We all have them. We all have people in our lives that are no good for our lives. And you're around this this fear, this wild animal. And this is where Jesus found himself. In the desert, surrounded by wild animals. But there's no record of anything ever happening to him. Do you know why? The last thought I'm going to share with you from Mark is because the Spirit of God covered him. See, what you have to realize is you will absolutely find yourself in the wilderness. You'll find yourself in a deserted place, a wasteland, a lonely place. And you'll find yourself in the midst of wild animals. You'll find yourself in the midst of being tempted by the devil. But the one thing that you have to know in that moment, in that time, and in that space is that Jesus and the Spirit of God is covering you. Verse 13, he says, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days out among the wild animals and the angels took care of him. They ministered to Jesus. That's what it means. When the Bible says they ministered to him, it literally means they met his needs. That's what minister means. See, this is going to lead us into the practicality of this spirit-led life. Okay, the spirit-led life. We're going to get to that in just a second because there's some practicality that is, I'm going to connect back to this part of Mark's story. But in Psalm chapter 91, here's where you have to find yourself when you're in the wilderness. You're tempted to the devil. You're lost. You're broken. You're lonely. This is this should be your go-to right here. Psalm 91, 13 verses. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trust him. For he will rescue you from, the trap, uh, from every trap and protect you from deadly dis- disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do you not... Do not Be afraid of the terrors of night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks into darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall by your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes. Here we go. This is the problem right here. Verse 8 is the problem that we have in humanity right now. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge... If you make the most high your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. That's the word of the Lord. That's the book. The question is, why don't we live this spirit-led and spirit-empowered life? For those that serve God, if you don't serve God, I'm sorry to say this is not going to help you at all. Because you are not who they're talking to. It sounds harsh, I know. But for those that serve the Lord and find themselves in the wilderness, there is no fear because he is walking with you. If you don't serve the Lord and you find yourself in the wilderness, I wish you all the luck. Because you're going to need that and a whole lot more to survive life. But the Bible says he gives you rest. He gives you safety. He rescues you. He protects you. He covers you. He shelters you. He promises you protection. No evil will conquer you. No plague will come on you. You'll trample the heads of the fiercest animals in the jungle. Just for walking with the Lord. So how do we make this practical? How do we live this spirit-led life that emulates Jesus' leading in a practical way? Those 81 places I mentioned that Ekbalo is used, the one, one of the very, very different places is found in Matthew chapter 9. And this is what I believe is going to be the the practicality of living a spirit-led life. See, there's a reason why you live a spirit-led life. It is not so that you can show off with all the power. It is not so you can speak in a thousand tongues It is not so that you can prophesy to the hills. It is not so that you can stand in front of people and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. The Spirit-led life has really one main objective. Found Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 38. The Bible says that Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of the area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37 he said to the disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. And in verse 38, so pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, ask him to send more workers into his fields. Interesting thought, that word ekbalo, that violent thrust is found in verse 38 when he says, ask him to send. Jesus is actually calling the church, God's people, to be thrust into the harvest fields. I mean, look at the world that we live in today. The harvest (laughs) is plentiful. You know, some people look and say the world's going to hell and everyone is subjective and sin is running rampant and it's no longer sin and if you call it sin it's now offensive and divisive and we love you if we agree with you and we hate you if you don't and never has our world ever been more ripe for a harvest than today. The whole point of living a spirit-led life is for you and I to harvest the field. It's not for you to sit and say, oh, look at how powerful I am. It's not even for you to grab a microphone and prophesy and preach. It is so that we can reach the world for the glory of Jesus and harvest the field that is ripe. That's the point of the spirit-led life. Life, The authority and the force of Jesus casting out demons is the same spiritual force and authority by which he's thrusting the church into the harvest field. It's the same authority. It's the same word. It's interesting. Mark uses this word. Jesus goes to confront Satan in the wilderness. And the same word is used to say that you ought to get into the harvest field. Be thrust into that space. You know, when Jesus casts out demons, they have to go. When Jesus sends laborers to the field, they have to go. That's why Isaiah even said, Lord, here am I. Send me. Who would stand before God today and say, Lord, here, is I, here am I. Send me. Who would be willing to just forsake everything that they know to follow after the call of God on their life? The disciples did it. The disciples that the disciples were making did it. People today are still doing it. Missionaries do it. Always sit comfortably. And then here's the interesting thing. We leave churches Every day. Because we have this feel, well, nobody reached out to me. Nobody invited me to come over. Nobody invited me to spend time with them. Yet those same people are the ones who rarely come to church on a Sunday morning. Never show up at a small group Don't serve at a local laundromat. Don't go to an event. They're the ones that don't do anything, yet they leave the church, and it's the church's fault for not coming to them. The Bible says to send workers, laborers, into the field. They go. They have to go. The ekbalo is the idea of being thrust into wherever God has called you to go. And if God's called you to go somewhere, you do something, you have to go. Because let me tell you something, if you don't, you will be miserable. You will absolutely be miserable. Evidence right here. I ran from the call of God on my life when I was younger, and she referenced 1999 in that, in that clue package there. 1999, I was coaching middle school girls basketball. forgot all about that. Gave my life to Christ in 98, was coaching middle school girls basketball in 99, You junior high youth pastoring in 2000. God called me into ministry full-time in 03, and I said, no, thank you. I make too much money. Life is too good. I'm comfortable. My, my mentality of pastors were like, yeah. not for me. And so with that no thank you came, oh, I'll get you. You have to go. Just like then Jesus cast out a demon, you have to go. He's like, Mike, you have to go. And I'm like, I'm good. No, you have to go. I'm good. All right, cool. Let's see how good you are. And literally, my successful business that I had built in sales began to crumble. People were good. Now, I, I, I bared some weight of this for a little while until the Lord set me free of that. But people went out of business that were my customers. It wasn't just that they stopped buying stuff from me; they went out of business completely. I kind of felt bad for a little bit. Did I put that? Per- Did my disobedience put them out of business? Like I said, God had to deal with me on some things there. But it's this—you this have to go mentality, and I would fight and fight and fight and fight and fight until I literally—I am a stubborn, stubborn man. I went from a nice house, nice cars, living a good life to no house, no cars. Wife, two kids, pregnant with number three in an 800-square-foot apartment. Let me tell you, I was not her favorite person because she knew. She knew what it was about. She knew what, why it what was going on. I got to a place where I literally fell on my face and said, God, I don't know what to do. And he said, go. I've been telling you the same thing all this time. Go. Seriously, just go. Get up and go. At any point in time you're ready to go, just go. So I put myself out there, I I fill out this application to be a youth pastor in this crazy town called Laredo, Texas. Absolutely not at all qualified. I don't know what I'm doing. They called me, they flew me and my wife in. Yeah, they hired me. I'm like, what the crazy. But all I ever had to do was just go. I could have avoided so much pain. Maybe made a little bit of money on the on the backside of it. But no. My disobedience said no. But if he's called you, you have to go. And if you're fighting him, you're going to fight and fight and fight and fight, and you're going to be miserable at the end of the fight. And you're still going to go. That's the worst part of it. It's kind of like my kids. I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not. You're going. I don't care what you say. Get your butt in the car. I'm not going. They go fight and fight and fight, and they still get in the car. They're still going. And they're going to be miserable until they go. And then, of course, lo and behold, they get where they're going. And guess what? Oh, they have fun, and they're laughing. I used to do this. my kids. No, 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 no. You don't get to laugh. You don't get to have fun. You fought way too hard to have fun. No fight. No fun. <laughs> I know I'm being foolish right now. But you have to go. It's the same urgency that Jesus cast out the demons that he said go into the harvest field. You have to go. Chad, if you can come and just play behind me as I close this out. It has this picture. Anybody a Rocky fan in here? Anybody ever watch the movies? Rocky had his old coach who was like so old it felt like every time he took a step dust fell. It's got this, this sense of the Holy Spirit is partnering with Jesus and he's partnering with you. And it's I, this idea of thrusting him into battle. It's kind of like Rocky's old manager yelling at him, "Get up! You're not finished yet. One more round." And that's all he kept saying to him. He said, "That's like it seemed like that was like his only line in the movie. At least the only one I remember. I know he had others." But you have this Holy Spirit who's partnering with us in this fight, and He's shouting to the fight, to, to to this fighter, "Go get him! Tear him down!" one more round. What you'll find out is by embracing the call of God on your life, embracing the Holy Spirit's leading to lead a Spirit-led life, not only will you be able to fight that one more round, but you'll be able to go the distance after that. You just have to do it. And so how do we do it? There's two simple ways. Number one, you just got to know. The Bible says that Jesus traveled all through the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. He healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, the workers are few. You got to know that the harvest is great and the workers are few. You got to know that there are people waiting for you to be obedient. There are people waiting for you to say yes to him. One of our missionaries that we supported and was a part of our church for a several a several years, she preached a message that said there are souls on the other side of your obedience. There literally are souls hanging in a balance and their salvation on the other side of your obedience to God. And then number 2 is very simple. You have to go. You have to know, and you have to go. What does go look like? Go could very simply be inviting someone to church. That's the start of it. It's not the only part of it. But it could be the start of inviting them to church, inviting them to a small group, inviting them to have coffee with you and talk about life and talk about what Christ has done in your life. If you're not telling folks what Christ has done in your life, my guess is either you're ashamed of him or he hasn't actually done anything. Which is it? You've got to know, and you've got to go. It's very simple. I love people who take a step of faith. It's scary. It freaks you out. There'll be moments when you have no idea how you're even going to survive. It's absolutely great. Because what's on the other side of that is...